And this morning, as you have your Bibles open to the book of Acts chapter 8, we continue our series called Kingdom Come through the book of Acts, and we've been asking this question, what would Ventura County look like if Jesus were king? And what should the church look like since Jesus is king? And today we want to ask the question, what would our conversation look like if Jesus were king? What would our emphasis be? What would be the most natural thing for us to talk about if Jesus were truly king? Let us read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and then I'll pray for our time together. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful picture that we have of men and women going everywhere, sharing great news about Jesus. And the result is that there was great joy in that city. Father, we pray today for those of us here in this place, for those joining online that each and every single one of us would know the joy of Jesus in our hearts. And if we have forgotten that we'd be renewed in our joy and that as a result, we would go everywhere telling everyone about the person who gave his life for us, about the person who made us new. Would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Everyone preaches something. Everyone. A message which so convinces us and captivates us that it compels us to share it with others. A message that becomes so natural that it's like second nature. You're just looking for opportunities to declare your message. The thought in your mind is this, if everyone could just fill in the blank, then the world would be a better place. I don't know how you would fill in that blank this morning. If everyone would just do this, if everyone would just do that, our country would be in a different place. Another word for this is evangelist, and there are all kinds of evangelists, aren't there? The word originally means announcers of good news. And there are many. There are fitness evangelists. There are economic evangelists. There's fashion evangelists. There's political evangelists. There's technology evangelists. There's homeschool evangelists. But there's also public school evangelists. 
Those of you who are like, yeah, like, oh, wait, me too? There's organic food evangelists. There's essential oils evangelists, although that's a little 2017 or maybe still 2021. I don't know. There's coffee evangelists. I was converted. Anyone? Can I raise a hand here? Yep. Vegan evangelists, multi-marketing evangelists. There's even atheist evangelists, people with a message that many will hope will cure our ills, solve our problems, and meet our greatest needs. Everyone preaches something. And in short, friends, listen, what we preach reveals what we prize. Whatever it is that we're preaching, the thing that we're going around that is most important to us reveals what we prize. And so the question for us this morning is, what am I preaching with my life? If you're not yet a a Christian this morning, or even if you're joining us online, we need to ask the question, we're all preaching something, what are we preaching with our lives? If people were to listen to me and watch what I emphasize most, what would it be? And if you are a, a Christian, and you're like, well, I preach the gospel, then the question is, how are we going about doing it? Now, this morning, I'm not only referring to public proclamation from a pastor's pulpit, but to the responsibility of every man and woman who follows Jesus. And I love that this is highlighted in our text because the book of Acts gives us the earliest history of Christianity. It tells us what the church did, where it got its power from, what the kingdom of God looks like in and through the church. And today, our text highlights preaching what they preached, how they preached, why they were preaching, and what do we learn? Well, I want to say three things this morning about kingdom preaching. I I see three lessons here that I would love for us all to take to heart. And the first is this. Preaching is an irreplaceable practice. It's absolutely irreplaceable. We see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, This crisis situation. For context, until this point, the church remained in Jerusalem. There was a devout man named Stephen, who Billy reminded us last week, who was appointed as a deacon or a servant leader in this thriving church community back in Acts chapter 6, where it all started. But as he was being public about his faith in Jesus, he was challenged, he was opposed, he was tried, and he was killed by the religious leaders of the day. But the opposition against the church did not end there. The death of Stephen sparked a persecution against Christians which spread throughout into another region, a very important region, a region that is the focus of this chapter, and it's a place called Samaria. Look at verse one. It says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And friends, there is a great connection between the situation of Acts chapter eight then and the need of our county and even our country today. Because Samaria, like every city, was a city in great need. Think about this. Samaria was a melting pot, ethnically, religiously, and economically. And like in most cities, there was a lot of tension. There were tensions between people 
and tension between groups of people. There was prejudice, there was crime, there was broken relationships. And on top of that, there were many physical needs. There were many who were sick, who were tormented, many who were unwell. Do we not see the same today? When we wake up in the morning, friends, when we read the news, when we look around this county, when we look around this country, do we not see the same? There is unrest around us that is always present, but it surfaces in a time of crisis, particularly that last year and going into this year. We see this unrest. We see it from political, racial, and economic tension all the way down to marriages, families, friendships, even tensions within churches. I was struck when I read this article about marriages and how marriages would be tried in 2020 going into 2021. And a leading divorce lawyer said in an article that this past year is, quote, very likely to lead to an increase in marriage breakups because of people being confined together for long periods amidst all the economic and financial strain. Don't we see that? We see it around us. Now, some people might say, yes, everybody recognizes that. Why did I come to church for somebody to, to tell me what I already know? But here is what is distinct. This is what is unique about the Bible. This is what's unique about the Christian view. The Christian view does not first ask, what should we do about it? That's not the first question that the scriptures answer. The first question that the scriptures answer is not, what should we do about it? But why is this happening in the first place? How did we come to a point where we see what we are seeing now? Why do these things exist? What is the cause? And the Bible's view is this. There is unrest around us because there is unrest within us. It comes from our hearts. And so our perspective is this. A crisis like what we've been experiencing this last year does not cause the unrest. It reveals the unrest. I was once in a, a meeting where an analogy was used to describe human nature like a, a glass of clear water with ink filling the bottom. Now, as long as that glass of water with the ink at the bottom was just sitting unmoved on a table, you could see right through the water. The water was clear. But the minute you bumped the table, what happens? The ink begins to swirl up into the water and all of a sudden everything becomes cloudy. And in many ways, friends, that's a description of human nature. We have what the Bible calls sin. It's, it's in our hearts. And it's when we're bumped that it really comes to the surface that we really begin to see it. The Bible says that a crisis did not cause the unrest. It actually reveals the unrest. It means that we need to confess that there is something beyond our circumstances, beyond our physical and relational needs. We need a change in our nature and this is what the kingdom of God is all about, changing us from the inside out. So the conflict in our cities always reveals a deeper conflict in our souls. That is the Bible's perspective and what makes it unique. The book of Romans, the apostle Paul puts it like this, the, the mind governed by the flesh, that is humanity living apart from God, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And this is what we see in the book of Acts in the very beginning, and we see it today. Opposition to God. Now that can be shown in different ways, whether we see it through a daily indifference 
like I used to be before I was a Christian. I didn't go around saying like, I hate God, I'm anti-Christian. I just ignored God. I wanted to have nothing to do with God. Whether it's a daily indifference or it's a concentrated effort like we see here in Acts chapter eight, there is great spiritual conflict. The reason for this is sin. It's a toxic self-focus that poisons everything and actually opens the door to supernatural evil. And that's what we see in this text. Friends, the Bible speaks to a variety of needs, but the greatest need is spiritual. The greatest need is eternal. We need salvation from the inside out, and that is why preaching is irreplaceable. And I say that because it's vital that that we, especially as the church, we see the depth of our need in order to understand why preaching, why evangelism, why the gospel is absolutely irreplaceable. Now, practically, if you don't see that, then you're going to begin to settle for all kinds of wrong solutions. You're going to be settling for lesser things to deal with the ultimate thing. As it's been said, and I love this, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need was for technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need was for money, then God would have sent an economist. Some of you are like, I'll I'll, I'll take a little bit of that. If our greatest need was for pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a savior. Preaching is irreplaceable. God has met our deepest need, and it is important for us as a church to always remember that and never settle for wrong solutions. So, think about your life. When people talk about all the tension that's going on in the world, what is your first response? You're like, well, essential oils are really, you know, what everyone needs. It's, it's what the world needs right now. It's like, no, I have nothing against essential oils. What is the greatest need? What is our first response? What are we putting forth? There is a spiritual unrest in our city, in our county, and this is true of every city. Everyone needs to hear the one message that can change them. And you're like, yes, but the question is how? How are they going to hear? Who is gonna tell them? I'm so glad you asked, because that leads to the second point. Preaching is not only an irreplaceable practice, but secondly, preaching is a community project. You're like, wait, I thought you were going to do that because you're preaching right now. We'll get to that in a minute. What should the church be doing? How does a kingdom community respond to such a need? We see that there's this great, deep spiritual need. They're in need of salvation. What are we going to do? Well, what this text makes absolutely clear is that the change in the city in Acts chapter eight, is not random. It is the result of a mission. Look at verse one again. Remember, all of these people, these men and women, just like you and I, they were scattered beyond their comfort, beyond the place they originally lived. They were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, this is important because in the earliest days of the church recorded for us in the first few chapters of Acts, we see men and women gathered in Jerusalem, 
where the crucified yet risen Jesus commissioned them to tell the world of what happened. And if you remember from Dom's first sermon in this series, Jesus told them to go and preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But up until this point, everyone stayed in Jerusalem. It was awesome. They experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. They probably had epic prayer and worship nights. It was amazing. And they're thinking like, yeah, we're going to stay right here. This is great. Like it's happening in Jerusalem. But they hadn't yet moved out beyond their comfort zone. Until this point, we've seen great community moments, but it took the events of Acts chapter 8 to push them further out on mission. Like when you kick a dandelion in the field and the, 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 the seed just spreads everywhere, the events of Acts chapter 8 caused the message of the church to spread we might not like opposition, we might not like persecution, but it can actually promote preaching, pushing us out of our comfort zones. The church went from being localized to being mobilized, and this is a temptation for us. We get in our like sweet little zone, we get in our, our comfort spot even within the church, but then the need of evangelism kind of unsettles us a little bit. Oh wait, no, I've got my tight-knit group. There's like eight of us, like we're the disciples. Okay, but are you telling other people about Jesus? Well, we've got a great study going on. You're like, that's good. And I hope that you're taking what you're learning outside of your group of eight. It's a part of mission. You don't get this idea that the early Christians were thinking like, oh, should we move to Samaria? Yeah, like, it's a nice place to settle down. No, they were thinking of mission. There was a strategic nature in it. So how do we respond to the spiritual need of our, our county in this time? How should we respond now? Well, I want you to notice it's a community project. In what way? Two simple ways. We share the gospel together and we show the gospel together. First of all, we share the gospel together. Since man's greatest need is only met by God's action in the gospel, the church's mission, most importantly, is a word mission. And notice, everyone is involved. I love the way that Acts chapter 8, I was excited to preach this text, if you can't tell, Acts chapter 8 describes evangelism. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is important. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What does that say? It doesn't say those who had been scattered who were, you know, publicly appointed into positions of leadership went everywhere preaching the word. That's not what it says. It just says everyone. And then in verse 5, we have Philip, who is a leader, who went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. I want you to notice that there are two groups of people here, and there are two different words that describe what they did. In verse 5, when Philip preaches the word, Philip was a gifted leader, the word used for him is the word used for a herald, someone who publicly proclaims. It, it is a public gift to speak to the crowds, and that is a good gift. But a different word is used to describe the whole church. They are simply going everywhere talking about Jesus. And some scholars, I love this, they have suggested that you could translate the word in verse 4 as gossip. That's fun. You're like, wait a minute. We're not supposed to gossip. Well, Yes, gossip typically was and is and has been, has a negative connotation to us today. We usually, when we say the word gossip, we usually think of it referring to 
talking about people behind their backs or spreading hurtful rumors about other people. And this kind of gossip is a sin according to the Bible. Originally, however, the word gossip simply meant casual chatter amongst family. Now, sadly, as many of us can attest to, sometimes the things that we most eagerly or naturally share isn't always healthy. Like, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm not Ben. I mean, I'm not one to gossip, but let me tell you seven things about what I saw the other day. Like, sadly, we're all guilty, right? Nobody's innocent here. We are all guilty. Sadly, oftentimes when we're naturally and eagerly sharing something in this kind of a gossip, it's often bad. But what if it was good? What if the thing that we most naturally and eagerly share the minute that we had the opportunity to do so was actually the gospel? What if the thing that we most naturally chatted about in casual conversation, like, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh my gosh, can I tell you about Jesus? Let me tell you seven things about Jesus. Let me tell you about how God changed my life. Let me tell you about how God has brought healing to my soul. Let me tell you about how God brought me out of darkness and into light, how he saved me from death and given me abundant life. Let me tell you how he's taken me out of broken relationships and he's healed my relationships and he's forgiven me of all my sin and given me a new identity, a new destiny, a new power, a new purpose in the life. Can we gossip about that? Amen? Can we, can we go around in our natural conversations telling other people what God has done in our lives? Imagine in a county in which our words have done so much damage that our words could actually bring so much healing. See, here's what I love. Evangelism can sound intimidating, but listen, evangelism is not necessarily about changing the topic. It's about bringing Jesus into the topic. So you're talking about work with one of your friends and they're stressed out about work and it's weighing heavily upon them. You have a moment casually there just to bring Jesus into the conversation. You don't have to say, oh, I'm sorry, your work is, yeah, whatever. Anyway, so I'm gonna tell you the gospel. What you're saying is, look, I understand that pressure in work. I used to find my identity in my career, but you know how I was changed? Jesus changed me. Can I tell you about that? I wanna bring Jesus into that conversation. I love the balance that we see here in Acts chapter eight. Public preaching and personal testimony, public heralding and gossiping the gospel. See, one error is to think that the leaders do all the work. But last week, Billy reminded us that we're a body and we all have different gifts and we all do his or her part within the body. But here we see both leaders and lay people, not just sages on stages. You know, it's like everyone is involved. People of different intellectual caliber, people holding different jobs, people of different age and different gender. These people went throughout the city. They arrived amongst strangers. They opened up their homes. They served meals and they just began to tell them about the good news of what Jesus had done for them. Not to embarrass my, my wife, but my wife is an incredible natural evangelist. When we were living in, in London, you know, I'm a little more extroverted. You guys are like, wait now, Tim. But my wife, not, not as much so, but one of the incredible things is that my wife, especially through schools that my children have been in, she builds these relationships over time and they, they go out for a coffee and then she's able to just share her story with them in, in the way that God uses her especially. And for all of us, God, God can do that using our 
natural relationships, our work, our neighbors, the people around us to build those bridges. If we don't have an answer to a particular question, sure, maybe we can point them to a resource, but you don't have to have an apologetics book memorized in order to share how Jesus has changed your life. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. It's not left to like the professionals. It's just men and women who have been changed by Jesus. We see a wonderful balance here. We share the gospel together, but we also show the gospel together because look at verse six. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. They not only preached, but they demonstrated what they preached by the works that they did. The church's activity was like a signpost to the message that they were preaching about Jesus. In fact, the word sign there in verse six means an event which is regarded as having a special meaning. The healing and the care and the liberation that we see happening here in Acts 8 is pointing to the gospel. People were healed of demonic oppression. Are unclean spirits real? Yes. Is God's power greater? Also yes. We also see care for the paralyzed and the lame. And all of this brought further attention to the message. The good deeds were not the cause of new life. They confirmed the message that brought new life. And I love this because every ministry in the church helps the evangelistic mission of the whole church. I like to think of it as an ecosystem. Now, I didn't do well in science, just cards on the table. I did not do well in science at school. But I know this about an ecosystem. Each plant, each tree, each animal has a part to play within that ecosystem. And if one is removed, it begins to impact the whole. You're like, well, Tim, you almost got it right. Thank you. And the church is the same. Like every one of us, we're a part of this evangelistic ecosystem. Every ministry in the church, I think of the kids' ministry. If you invite your neighbor family to church and they come, the adults will sit here, they'll hear the message, but who's looking after the kids? Who's communicating to the kids? Who's giving the kids the Cheez-It snacks and the ring pops that help our sanity, you know, on Sunday mornings and coloring in, you know, the, the kids' lesson? Like those volunteers serving, it's a part of this evangelistic ecosystem. Isn't that wonderful? And we all have a part in this. The youth, global mission, our Sunday gathering, prayer meetings, every single man and woman doing their part in the evangelistic mission of the church. I love that. And one of the descriptions that's always stuck out to me is from a book called The Cities of God, How the Church Turned the Roman Empire Upside Down. And listen to what the author says. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. We share the word together. We show the word together. And what happens when we do? Preaching is not only an irreplaceable practice, and a community project. But lastly, preaching is a life-changing power. Why? Because preaching is about Jesus, and Jesus changes everything. Look at the result. I don't know if you noticed when we read it, but I love Acts chapter 8, verse 8, when it says simply, so there was great joy in that city. Can you imagine right now just crossing that out and putting in Ventura County? And so there was great joy in Ventura County. 
How could that happen? Jesus. Jesus brings joy. Jesus is the power that brings life. The church did not preach a word. The church preached the word. And what was that? They didn't preach a philosophy of life or an inspirational, you know, TED talk or a mode of behavior or whatever. It was a declaration of what God has done about the problem of humanity. Acts is about facts. It's about what God has done in our world. Though mankind has fallen and broken, the story of Christianity is that God has acted to deliver us in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it was Jesus that they responded to. He is the source of joy, and he is the very message itself. We preach him. And it is the power of this message that drove people like Philip to the city in the first place. Because Philip experienced the power of the very message he preached. So powerful, in fact, listen to this, that even the man responsible for killing Christians the man responsible for the violence at the beginning of this chapter would by the next chapter become a Christian. The man named at the beginning of this chapter is a man named Saul opposing the church. And because of the power of Jesus, by the end of Acts chapter nine, he was a new creation. And you and I can become the same. Anyone can be changed by this message. The moment someone believes you are changed, forgiven, made new. Jesus is the power that brings new life. Jesus is the power to break down barriers. Philip was the most unlikely person to reach the city of Samaria because Jews and Samaritans had no dealings. Why did Philip go there? Because this love, this joy sent him there. Jesus is the power to bear this joy in our souls and our city. The gospel is this, we're separated from God because of our sin, and yet he sent his son Jesus to pursue us and to lay down his life as a sacrifice and to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we could get the life that he deserves, all oh, that everyone would know. If you're not yet a Christian, you're joining us here in the parking lot. If you're not yet a Christian, you're joining us online. Your life can be changed in one moment. If you simply say, even today, Jesus, save me, not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I believe that you rose again to give me new life. You can pray that today and know this new life for yourself. I wanna lead you in that in a moment. And church, I'm gonna be honest, I feel intimidated. I feel afraid about evangelism. I always get like this little, like, little anxiety thing when someone's like, you know, hey Tim, you know, oh Tim, I'd love for you to meet this person so you can share the gospel with them. I'm like, Ugh. But you know what? The greatest way that I've learned to deal with that, I just think, think about how great Jesus is. Joy fuels evangelism. Treasuring Jesus fuels evangelism. So this morning, church, has Jesus changed you? Has Jesus changed us? Now go and tell. This is what happens when the kingdom of God comes. His gracious rule comes. We tell everyone about it. So for Ventura County to have joy, it takes the gospel. And for Ventura County to have the gospel, it takes a church. And it is the joy of Jesus Christ that sends us, and that is news worth gossiping about. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this message of life, that you have sent Jesus to come and to live in our place, to die for all of our sins, to take away our guilt, to take away our shame, to take away our, our fear. And you rose again and conquered death to give us new life. 
Father, I pray first and foremost for those joining us who have not yet believed, who know that even now by the power of your Holy Spirit working are aware of their sin, are aware of their guilt, are aware of their need of healing. I pray that right now they would turn and trust in Jesus. And in an attitude of prayer, if that is, if that is you, whether you're watching online or you're here, right now, just pray from your heart, Jesus, accept me, forgive me. I confess that I'm a sinner. And I believe that you've done everything necessary to save me, not just for a moment, for, for eternity. And I believe that, I'm trusting in that. Friend, if that's you, just pray that right now and know that you are forgiven. And Father, for us as a church, I pray that you would overcome our fear, our intimidation, our insecurity, our anxiety about this thing called evangelism. Overcome that with joy. I pray that joy would be the fuel for our evangelism. I pray that joy over the fact that you have saved us, that you love us, that you rescued us, that you accept us forever. I pray that that joy would send us out and that we would share freely and boldly and simply, can I just tell you what Jesus has done for me? So Father, I pray that even now as we respond in worship and in prayer, that you would fuel our joy by causing us to see Jesus anew and afresh. Would you do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand to our feet right now if you're able. Just let us stand. And as we sing these songs, this is not some kind of religious act. This is us saying, Jesus, you are our joy. The way I'm going to overcome all my fears about sharing or this mission that you've called us to, or maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed by what's happening in the world right now, the greatest thing for your heart is to focus on Jesus. And as we sing together, we're declaring, Jesus, you are the joy of my heart. You are my chief treasure. We worship you now. Let's do that in response to his word. The joy of our salvation. May that drive our worship now.